This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. My name is Susan Everingham. I'm the director of RAND's Pittsburgh's office, and I am so pleased that all of you are here to join us to talk about water management and climate resilience in Pittsburgh. The most important job that I have right now is to introduce our moderator. Moderator is Lisa Schroeder. She is the CEO of River Life. Um, I met Lisa shortly after I moved here five years ago um, as I was wandering around this beautiful city saying, look at these gorgeous rivers coming from Southern California, which has no rivers. Look at these beautiful rivers. Look at all this water, all this potential in this city. And lo and behold, there's an organization that's helping the city achieve that potential. And when uh, we knew we were going to do an event on water, we knew Lisa would be a great moderator. So Lisa, let me turn it over to you to introduce our speakers. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Susan. And thanks to RAND for hosting this deep dive into one of our region's greatest challenges. This is a challenge that impacts nothing less than the survival of our greatest resource and the health of our population. I was lucky enough uh, a couple of weeks ago to travel with the delegation to Denver doing benchmarking research. And um, we were reminded of of what a resource we have in our water by almost every speaker who spoke to the politics of water in Colorado saying, out here, whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's my honor to introduce three big thinkers who are equally at home on the front line of forging groundbreaking policy, evaluating technical solutions, and working through the political and stakeholder alignments that will be essential if we are to meet our goals. There's nothing more inspiring to me than those moments when a community comes together to to solve an important issue that confounds us. This is such a frontier effort. Each of these panelists has a record of experience that makes him an expert, and each is in a frontline leadership role. Grant Irvin has been recruited by Mayor Peduto to play a key new leadership role as sustainability manager for the city of Pittsburgh, bringing to bear his 15 years of experience working in environmental, community, and economic development and infrastructure policy to create sustainable solutions. Prior to joining the city, Grant was regional director for 10,000 Friends of Pennsylvania and public policy manager for the Pittsburgh Community Reinvestment Group. He has a master's degree from the University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Jordan Fishbach is a policy researcher at RAND and a core faculty member at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. His research focuses on climate change adaption, risk analysis, infrastructure planning, exploratory modeling, and decision-making methods to better manage long-term uncertainty. He recently led a two-year storm surge and damage assessment for Louisiana, which resulted in the 2012 Comprehensive Master Plan for a Sustainable Coast, and he was awarded a RAND President's Choice Award. With an academic pedigree that includes four degrees, he is currently working with the EPA to better incorporate robustness against climate change and other uncertainties into future water quality planning. 
Brian Jensen is Senior Vice President at the Allegheny Conference on Community Development, where he manages the Strengthening Community Partnership and is Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Economy League of Greater Pittsburgh. He has a PhD in History and Public Policy from Carnegie Mellon University and a BA and MA from Ball State University. Jensen has also reserved, uh, served as a Peace Corps volunteer working on village water projects in Liberia. Each one of them will be giving you a remarkably succinct presentation, <laughs> given the immensity of the topic at hand. I think they've worked really hard to, to give you just the essence of, of, of their wisdom. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you all for being here today. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you about uh, our involvement <clears throat> at the Allegheny Conference on uh, sewer and stormwater management and regionalization. Just before I jump into the slides, just to give you a little bit of background about why I'm up here, uh, we were approached uh, at the Allegheny Conference about three and a half years ago by Alcasan uh, to work with them in the development of their, uh, their long-term um, wet uh, weather plan, particularly on the issue of regionalization. They knew that EPA was going to require a regionalization component. They asked us if we would uh, help them through that process. We did put together a process chaired by uh, Jerry Cohen uh, from Carnegie Mellon uh, and came up with uh, a number of recommendations that uh, you'll see here in the slides. I don't think I'm telling most of you anything new here. Most of you are, are sort of groupies in the sort of the sewer uh, sewer realm uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but true <laughs> but perhaps some of you are somewhat new to the region and I did want to give a little bit of a background uh, in what the the overall context of the discussion is today uh, Alcasan uh, was created back in 1946 as a joint uh, city of Pittsburgh Allegheny County uh, sewer uh, uh, wastewater treatment um, facility. Uh, serves a lot of people, uh, very large land area, and very importantly, a lot of municipality. This 83 municipalities, that is what is key here, at least in terms of my presentation today. Uh, Alcasan provides wastewater treatment only and conveyance to the treatment plant. They don't own any of the collection uh, uh, lines out in the municipalities that you live in. From your house, you have a lateral, which you are responsible for. You own that. Uh, the wastewater from your uh, house goes down to uh, a, a collector uh, line, uh, which is owned by your municipality or in the city of Pittsburgh uh, by the, uh, by the uh, Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority, for example. That then is conveyed down to big interceptor pipes, that Alcasan owns. That's all Alcasan owns. They own these large interceptor pipes. John, what are they? Maybe 16 feet in diameter, 20 feet in diameter. These are enormous interceptor uh, pipes. It catches all the stuff that's coming out of your households and out of streams and out of uh, broken laterals and out of every other conceivable place. It takes it down to the treatment plant at Woods Run and there it is treated, we hope. If it rains, most of it is not treated. It overflows into the rivers. 
Uh, and th th that's the way it was designed to work. Uh, back in the 1950s, it was state-of-the-art engineering. Uh, you know, we had a lot of uh, combined uh, uh, stormwater and wastewater lines. It was, the idea was, you know, the solution to pollution is dilution. So put it all together, and it'll be okay if it ends up in the Ohio River. No problem. That's the way it was meant to work. It was meant to overflow if the system was, over, uh, was overtaxed. Because you don't want to destroy the, the, the plant, right? It's, you know, billions of dollars of investment down there. Well, the Clean Water Act of 1972 begins to ratchet that down and says, uh -uh, we're not going to work that way anymore. We are going to try to guarantee clean water, uh, fishable, swimmable, uh, John, what else? Fishable, swimmable, and drinkable uh, in the United States. So a lot of stuff happens. By 2008, we have a consent decree by the EPA uh, to totally eliminate the sanitary sewer overflows and to, uh, uh, to uh, drastically reduce the combined sewer overflows by 2026. All right, so what's that going to cost us? A lot of money to do that. The original plan that uh, uh, was conveyed in the, the wet weather um, uh, management plan was to put in big interceptor lines all the way up the Allegheny, all the way up the Mon, put in these big storage um, tanks upstream, uh, additional work in Chartiers, uh, the Chartiers um, Creek watershed and sawmill run. A lot of inf infrastructure, a lot of gray infrastructure, right? Barney Ausler, uh, you're in the audience. Well, that's $3.6 billion of gray infrastructure. And uh, to the credit of um, the Clean Rivers campaign and a number of other uh, individuals, uh, they were saying, blowing the whistle, saying, hold the phone. We can't afford it. And number Two, maybe even more importantly, we really shouldn't do it this way. We shouldn't just put a bunch of money in the ground. There are better ways to deal with this. Let's think about this a little more broadly. Uh, let's try to fix the system in a way that's going to not only address clean water, but try to give us some other community benefits. So, uh, and, and by the way, that $3.6 billion plan, I'll show you how unaffordable it is. Uh, there are broad swaths of the Alcasan treatment area that simply cannot afford the requisite uh, Alcasan rates that would need to be charged in order to pay for that $3.6 billion plan. We cannot afford to do $3.6 billion worth of work. So uh, not exactly back to the drawing board, but uh, that generated a lot of discussion and a lot of rethinking. Uh, so originally the thought was all those 83 municipalities are going to convey everything that comes out of their municipalities down to Woods Run. Well, is that the best way to do things? 80% of the flow, as John Schombert will tell you, comes from unmetered sources. That means it's not necessarily coming from your household. We don't really know exactly where it's coming from. Some of them are streams that back in 1910, Joel Tarr, or, or in 1900, were uh, channeled into pipes 
to run them right out to uh, to to the to the rivers. They're underground, and you know. So, how do we how do we deal with this big mess of uh, of problems? Maybe a smarter approach is to look at reducing the amount of stormwater, the infiltration, the inflow that gets into those pipes in the first place. So the whole idea of the regionalization panel that the conference put together with Jerry Cohen, a number of you in the room uh, were, per, were participants uh, in that process, was to bring together uh, stakeholders uh, to begin to talk about the regionalization aspects of this. And what I mean by that is, you know, we've got these 83 municipalities, They're, they all have their own ownership uh, of their, uh, uh, their collection systems. But this is a regional uh, problem that requires a regional solution. How do you get 83 municipalities to get on the same page and try to do things in a more rational, uh, efficient, less expensive, and more intelligent way? Well, that's only part of the problem because we've got everything from uh, total maximum daily loads out there uh, in some of our streams. We've got, um, what else do we have here? We've got um, uh, source reduction projects going on. For example, a few years ago, uh, there was a combined effort to daylight Jack's Run. Okay, well, now Jack's Run is, is daylighted. That's a good thing. That was Bellevue and Pittsburgh, and Alcasan PWSA probably had a piece of that. That's one stream out of, I don't know, hundreds? Hundreds, John, hundreds, Joel, that are underground. The, the point of this is that we have lots and lots and lots of different stormwater, wastewater issues that need to be addressed to finally channel down here to this goal of having essentially clean water. So uh, a regionalization panel came out with some recommendations, and I'm happy to say that uh, those recommendations are um, now uh, in the process of being implemented. Uh, the Institute of Politics uh, has uh, put together uh, a report. Uh, uh, I see Kim here. Uh, they're, uh, they're, I think, just about, I think there may be a couple of more steps, but just about to come out with a report that, in essence, will say we need to expand the Alcasan board and make it more representative of the suburban municipalities. We had also recommended that there be specific qualifications for the appointees to the Alcasan board. That modified a little bit, but uh, we're getting at the idea that uh, we're going to have more input from our municipal uh, officials out there, more input generally from stakeholders like those of you here in the room today, um, and that we have to have just generally a better coordination of this entire problem across the region. Uh, uh, also, we have uh, Three Rivers Wet Weather and Connect, the Congress of Neighboring Communities, uh, who have put together a process to um, implement the recommendation that we need to transfer these trunk lines. We have 
So I talked about these collection lines in the municipalities. I talked about the big interceptors that lie underneath the rivers. But in many cases, there are interim, uh, yeah, intermediate pipes. There are a lot of pipes out there that are of 10 inches in diameter or larger that run uh, not just through a Shaler Township, but may start up in Hampton Township, run through Shaler, uh, run down through Etna, and eventually get to the Alcasan system. Etna is at the bottom end of you know one of these long, uh, long trunk line um, uh, uh, trunk lines. Well, when it rains, it drains, it drains downhill, and suddenly Etna is under you know eight feet of water and saying, "Come on, guys, upstream, can you help us here?" Well, to Shaler's credit and others' credit, upstream they said yes. We do have that responsibility. And so the agreement was that we are going to work on transferring those intermunicipal trunk lines from individual municipal or authority responsibility over to Alcasan, who can address the management of those, the maintenance of them uh, less expensively in a more rational way. Uh, they can prioritize which ones need to be upgraded first, uh, make better use of the money that we have at any given time. Uh, uh, so that's well underway, as Jack Eubinger will tell you. We've got um, uh, a, a number of um, uh, legal tenants that we've all pretty well agreed to. Now we're in the process of, process of due diligence and um, uh, putting together the actual uh, uh, documents that will make these um, uh, <coughs> transfers happen. Um, but we also have to talk about reducing the volume generally. Um, and so another task of this group is to look at financial incentives for reducing the flow to begin with. Uh, so um, we're hoping by the end of this year that we'll have a report and we'll have a process in place uh, and we'll be well on our way uh, to those transfers. And I think that's what I had to say today. So thank you. <laughs> So thank you, Rand, for the opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you all today. It's a, a pleasure to be a part of such an esteemed group uh, and an esteemed crowd of water groupies. Um, I think we'll have to get some T-shirts or bumper stickers or something. Maybe that's part of the Chotsky package <laughs> we can deliver. Um, so what I'm going to do over the next six minutes is uh, talk with you all about the last six months of my life. Um, I am admittedly not a water guy, uh, haven't been until January 6th uh, when I had the privilege of taking the position as sustainability manager with uh, Mayor Peduto's staff. Uh, my background is in community development and infrastructure systems, primarily transportation, which is how I first discovered Rand in some previous work in my past life, um, and got introduced to the water conversation with a, a conversation with John Schombert and Darla Cravada who's very sneakily in the back of the room, in <laughs> um, uh, understanding kind of the issue of the day, and that is water. Our two biggest challenges that we face in the city of Pittsburgh are air quality and water quality. These are our opportunities as well as our impediments. Attainment of Clean Water Act standards and improving our air quality should be at the forefront of everyone's mind in this region. Because if we're able to solve these challenges, 
we're limitless. We're unboundless in terms of the success that we can achieve as a city and as a region. This slide basically depicts how we are organizing our sustainability program in the city of Pittsburgh. On the top are those two primary issues, air and water quality. Beneath them are two ways in which we are looking to help develop that programming in terms of the next generation of the clean economy, as well as building resilient infrastructure. And that's a kind of a pivot conversation that I think that we have set up here today, is that this conversation about water and how we think about water, how we've thinked about water in the past, is about to change. The paradigms in which we exist in right now are different than they were five years ago, 10 years ago, or even 15 years ago when this started. And that is to say that our challenge that we confront is one of quality, not quantity, which is a much better position for us to be in because I would like to think that that is a solution or a challenge that has a solution versus quantity, which is one where people are fighting wars over. Um, and not, hopefully they're not drinking while they're doing it. <laughs> But the other piece of this is with regards to how we approach this issue of water specifically in terms of city operations, which is the internal component, how we think in terms of delivering change through the delivery of services and how we operate as a local government, but also externally, given the thought to how we have the opportunity as a local government to help determine the future path of development with regards to the establishment of infrastructure systems and how we grow and develop as a city. So this slide, which you can't really see too well, shows the good, bad, and the ugly with regards to what water can mean here in Pittsburgh. The top slide you'll see is Washington Boulevard from a few years ago when there was fatalities along a major corridor in the city of Pittsburgh as a result of backup because of a major rainstorm. The top side on the right, I didn't know this until I looked a little bit closer, but that's actually my neighborhood. That's Morningside, atop a hill in the Heths Run watershed. It was a great opportunity to kayak. For those of you who might have seen some of this presentation in the past, I'll do a quick story, which is a couple years ago, my wife and I, we did a staycation here in Pittsburgh, and we decided to go kayaking. And we jumped in the river, and we had a great little time paddling around. And across the bank on the right-hand side of the Allegheny River, I saw a little blue and white sign. And it was a hot day. It was about 85 degrees. I was like, oh, God, it's so hot. Tossing water in my face to cool off. And I was like, what's that sign say? <laughs> like, oh, I'll check it later. So we paddled around the point, And then we came back around on the other side. And then I had a chance to read the sign. And I said, <laughs> my wife said, what's the matter? I said, nothing. nothing. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you guys laughed at that story, is, it shows that you're all water groupies. Um, it also shows kind of our economic opportunity in the bottom slides in terms of using our rivers for commerce, clean electricity, the potential that we have with hydropower, the opportunities that we have uh, both through the delivery of clean water through uh, our authorities as well as uh, the aspects of recycling water through our buildings and rethinking how the relationship in the built environment and water exists. So why is this important? Well, a little bit of context for us is to think in terms of the major watersheds that exist in Pennsylvania. So what you have here is a map of those, uh, the Ohio, the Susquehanna, the Delaware, the Potomac, the Genesee, and the Erie. Now, one of the key points of this is that water is our competitive advantage. Like I said, we have a quality issue, not a quantity issue, which is a good position to be had. Now, some context, this is the John Schaumburg slide here is to think in terms of that relationship with regards to federal and state expenditures per capita on water. 
And what you see here basically is us there in the Ohio Basin and $10 per capita compared to the Susquehanna at $486, $376 from the Delaware of the Potomac at $31, and the Great Lakes at $3,853. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Interstate compacts, international compacts, the Great Lakes, Save the Bay. But it really shows you how we have thought about water in the past, or maybe how we haven't thought about water in the past. So in terms of a water resource agenda, these are the things that are on our radar screen. A lot of you are involved in different aspects of these different processes from governance, planning, engagement. But thinking in terms of the relationship, going back to that previous slide, our relationship between federal and interstate activity. How we as a, a region are thinking about water, some of the stuff that Brian was talking about. Citywide, some of the things that we are thinking as a local government in terms of how do we both procure and provide better water resource management. What's it mean for a homeowner or a business owner? And finally, what's it mean for city operations? My friend James Stitt here in the, in the third row will tell you, we don't meter for water. The city of Pittsburgh does not meter for water. Now, there's historical reasons why that occurs, but one of the things that we want to do is to make sure that we meter for water. And the reason is it's a, it's a performance issue. We can't manage what we can't measure. And if we're able to measure our water performance, we're able to dictate our delivery, conservation efforts, and up the supply chain, we're able to think in terms about energy reduction, the amount of chemicals that we provide into the system for treatment, et cetera, et cetera. So here's a, a list of some of the water objectives we have. At the end of the day, through the mayor's leadership, our, our goal is to have Clean Water Act compliance. We want clean water. This is something that we could do. This is possible. The wheels that are in motion right now with regional cooperation, the discussions with regards to interagency cooperation, transfer of trunk lines, et cetera, et cetera, are all part of that process, but there's much more to do. Reducing flow and infiltration to the system. Developing systems of water resource management and intermunicipal cooperation. I think one of the things that was most, uh, I think one of the most important things that the EPA taught us last week was that regionalization is, yes, that conversation of all 83, but it's also a functional conversation with regards to how do we develop integrated watershed management. How are we thinking about source reduction and flow reduction into that system through the maximization and optimization of natural infrastructure? How do we use our parks better? How do we create new systems of green infrastructure to reduce flow? And at the end of the day, it's really about how do we mitigate that impact on ratepayers. Brian showed the slide. It's unaffordable. But there's major opportunities in that, both in terms of economic development, if we're thinking in terms of improvements that we can make in terms of green infrastructure on the surface that people see. But it's also how do we reduce cost to all of us as rate players. So towards cleaner water, here's a, a little, some bullet points of some of the things that we're, we're actively working on at the city of Pittsburgh in terms of what we look to do in terms of addressing a clean water infrastructure. One of the things is developing a proposal with our partners at PWSA, as well as community leaders and the, and the, the university sector, as well as those in the private sector, to look at strategically. How can we maximize and optimize our investment in natural infrastructure systems? Where is the water flowing? 
What does the hydrology tell us? What does soils tell us? Where is economic development going to occur and where is community benefit going to be the highest, particularly in terms of reducing the impact on vulnerable populations? Deploying adaptive management and green infrastructure. This is a great example in terms of sawmill run, how we're working with neighboring communities to think in terms of a watershed. How is nature dictating how we should be thinking in terms of addressing the flow and the impact of water? Remodeling code and improving administration. One of the things that PWSA is working at right now, in fact, tomorrow, right, will be the first meeting of an interagency collaboration where we're going to begin that journey in terms of modernizing code and cooperation between agencies. Who does what? Who should do what? How do we get the solutions in terms of addressing this issue? Right now, our systems are not geared to address the problem that we confront today. So from a tactical and strategic standpoint, we have to rethink the operations of our authorities and local government with regards to how to get the compliance. Evaluating the establishment of Clean Water Fund. How do we develop a tool to invest in our communities? How can we as ratepayers use our resources through our systems to invest in street trees, and park development, in the installation and natural infrastructure that can help mitigate this problem. Advancing regional cooperation, we've talked a little bit about that. Reforming the governance of Alkistan and modernizing the system of intermunicipal conveyance. Two key conversations that we spent three hours this morning, um, and sometimes it seems like every morning, having <laughs> this conversation with regards to how do we formulate a system from a governance standpoint that is accountable and also integrates the needs of all communities within the system? But also, as a part of that, how do we start to move a major piece of that system to the regional provider, in this case, Alkistan? But on top of that, what's most important is how are we reducing flow? So governance and conveyance of the trunk lines is a big, important step. But the big question is, how are we reducing flow? How are we reducing the impact on the system? The stuff that we're working on right now is easy compared to what's next. But we have to start thinking about that, because at the end of the day, that's what's going to get clean water. So they, they asked me to provide a, a little bit of a, an insight in some of the things, in terms of some of the things that are occurring here in the city right now. And this is what's really, I think, awesome, is that the community is way out in front of policymakers. What you see here is an example. There's some projects that are community-generated projects, right? Sawmill Run, you know, one of the, probably the most afflicted places in terms of the negative impacts of water on our system. There's a, there's a story that I learned about, and, and this kind of will lead into some of Jordan's presentation. Part of our awakening moment in Pittsburgh is a, re, a pivot, really, in terms of thinking in terms of resilience. We have an issue of climate that is in front of us. And the issue of climate isn't just about reduction and thinking about how you recycle and reduction of your carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera, which is all important. But the issue is really how you bounce back. Stuff's going to happen. Rains are going to occur. Storms are going to occur. The question is, how do we adapt and how do we act in the face as a resilient community to the challenges that we confront. Sawmill runs all about that. Hess Run Restoration, huge economic opportunity in my backyard. This is the zoo parking lot, the former city dump. 
it is the major, one of the major impacts in terms of economic opportunity of a, a regional destination where everybody takes their children to go see polar bears and penguins. But it's a huge opportunity to show what we can do in a region in terms of that opportunity of reducing the, the negative impacts of stormwater. Project 15206 is all about the resident. It's about stormwater reduction through green infrastructure installations, through the establishment of a rain barrel program, really getting people engaged at the grassroots level in terms of what they can do as an individual. The Green Boulevard. This is a regional vision about rethinking the Allegheny, Green, the, the Allegheny River and its relationship with Lawrenceville and the communities that connect to it. It's an amazing, award-winning plan. The plan now gets to be put, needs to be put into action. Nine Mile Run Restoration, this is probably one of our best stories with regards to kind of the, the first out of the gate. Really thinking in terms of an intermunicipal cooperation about rethinking restoration. Um, probably one of the most successful new developments in, in Pittsburgh's recent memory with, with Somerset at Frick Park. All part of saying that we can redevelop and restore at the same time. Four Mile Run, same thing. Thinking about the impacts on the Monongahela side. How do we integrate our park system and natural infrastructure through our parks as a part of the solution? And 21st Street is really about rethinking from a design component. How do you work within a built environment to recapture what's possible? You know, so what it comes down to is really about our environments changing. The question is how do we adapt? How do we adapt this conversation that we're having right now today about a combined sewer overflow sanitary sewer overflow problem, but put it within a context of what we are facing. We are in a position, like many other river cities, like other older industrial communities, that really is indifferent. But the question becomes, how are we going to solve it in order of the adversity that we're facing with regards to our changing climate and with regards to an asset that is really unique? So... Just to end, why water? It's about attainment. It's something that we can do. It's something that is totally possible if all the boats are rowing in the right direction together. The other issue is, this is the Jim Good from PWSA line, we can't kick the can down the road because kicking the can down the road is really kicking ourselves. And it's really kicking our children. So the idea, and I'm going to be honest here, the idea that this is a process of 10 years in the making this is a cathedral building opportunity, right? So we have, to, we, we have the cornerstones to that cathedral in place. We have all of the shepherding has been done. The question is now is how are we going to act? Are we going to deliver? Are we going to stand up in the face of this challenge? And that leads us to accountability. How are we going to re reduce flow into this system? The governance and the conveyance issues are easy. The bigger issue is about how do we across the system, reduce flow into the system? And how do we think differently? Water is differently. Water is in a different context right now. I mean, I think, I think the analogy about Denver, I mean, for me, it was, it was Boise. In, conver in conversations with folks in Boise, Idaho, they get 11 inches of rain a year. Yeah, geez. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a problem. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the solution is to that. That is like smashing whiskey bottles and, and, and going out. Because our water is, we have abundant. We, we have abundant water, but we waste it. Mm -hmm. We're wasting this opportunity, which is our principal resource, 
So the fact that we have rivers that are unclean and unsanitary and a guy from Morningside who splashes water in his face on a staycation with his wife is like, oh my God, what did I just do? <laughs> that shouldn't be the case. It defines us. This is our water. This is our moment. This is our town. What we are going to do about it is going to be indicative of who we are. So, thank you. Thanks. All right. Um, I will jump right in here. Um, so thank you to, to the esteemed panel overall, and thank you to Lisa as well. Thank you all for being here today. So um, I think that, that Brian and Grant set it up really nicely in terms of both the, the challenges and opportunities as well as uh, thinking about all the processes that are undergoing are, are ongoing right now, and I know that many of you in, are involved in those processes. And what I really wanted to focus on with the few minutes that I have is to focus in on the role that, that research and analysis can, can play to support these types of processes, that we see so much activity, and I think the next step is really to understand how does this all fit together and what is the role for analysis to support the key decisions that need to be made uh, in the near future. So I wanted to start off to say that you know, we've described kind of what the past and the present looks like, um, but our understanding is, and what the most recent assessments suggest, um, is that we're going to see a lot more change and it's going the wrong direction. Um, so one thing that really came out of the National Climate Assessment, which was just released in the last couple of months, um, that, that spoke directly to our region, um, is that we're actually able to detect a signal um, in, in the recent climate data, the last 50 years, in terms of what heavy rainfall events look like. So what we're seeing is that these rainfall patterns are changing and that more severe rainfall events are becoming more common that these sort of top, very, very heavy rainfall events um, have brought more rain over the last 50 years, and then obviously the potential for uh, more effects in terms of water quality, as well as uh, you know, flash flooding and, and, and damage-producing uh, damage events. So this is the, the summary map that the National Climate Assessment produced. And what you're seeing here is this map showing, again, an increase in percentage and the amount of uh, precipitation falling in these very heavy events. And this is looking over the last 50 years. And what jumps out here is that the region that has seen the most change in terms of these heavy events is the Northeast, um, you know, in, in, including us, and that we've seen almost a doubling in the, in the, in the, in the severity of these events um, just over the last 50 years. This is something that we're actually expecting to continue into the future. There's still a lot of uncertainty in the climate models about precipitation. Um, but one thing that does come out when you look at the consensus estimates um, is that when we project forward, looking to 2100, for example, that regardless of the scenario, and I apologize, the colors are a little hard to see here, so I'll describe it, um, that we're going to see additional change um, over the next uh, you know, 80 to 100 years. Um, so that under the, uh, the most optimistic scenario in terms of rapid emissions reductions, we would still uh, are likely to see at least a doubling of these types of events um, over, or by, by 2100. Um, if we look at the, uh, the continued emissions increases, basically the pathway that we're on right now, uh, and you can kind of see it right here just with Western Pennsylvania, but we're actually looking at a tripling or quadrupling of the severity of these events, uh, looking at those same heavy rainfall events. So this is not a static system. This is something that's changing and that we're likely to face additional challenges into the future um, as, as we move forward in, in, in a warming world. So... What this suggests and what this you know, draws from in terms of parallels from work that we've done in other areas um, is that the traditional way that we do analysis to support decision-making doesn't always work well in these types of situations. 
So in particular, we call this you know, climate and, and other deep uncertainties. Uh, these are situations where you might have uncertainties that are underestimated. So we don't know what the probability is of a given outcome, so we're just going to set it aside or we're not going to look at it. Um, or we're not able to put a probability on it, so we can't really figure out how to factor it into our, uh, our estimates. Um, or, you know, you have different scenarios, uh, different assumptions that are made by, by different types of analysis, and they come to different answers, and so you might get gridlock. Uh, different analysis, analyses produce different results, and there's no way to square those different results. And finally, going back to my previous point, you might just set it aside and believe that your plan is working well and not think about some of those big, deep uncertainties, and you might then be blind to some surprises. So in these cases... Um, and again, drawing on the work that we've done in a lot of other places, um, we often apply a, a set of methods and ideas um, that were developed at RAND called Robust Decision Making, or RDM. Um, and the general concept here, and I'll go through it very briefly, is it's designed for precisely these sort of long-term uh, you know, problems, particularly in infrastructure, um, where you're faced with this type of deep uncertainty um, by taking sort of the traditional analysis methods and instead running them backwards. So if in a traditional analysis where you're looking out 50 or 100 years, um, often the, the, the standard approach would be um, to start out and ask, well, what will the future be? What might future conditions be? And do your best to try to predict the future, to try to say, what is my forecast of the future? What would those conditions look like? And develop a best estimate forecast for that future. Then you look at your different policy options, and you think about what's the best decision we can make in the near term for that most likely future. Um, and usually towards the end, you'll do some sort of sensitivity analysis. You'll think, well, if we modify one thing or another, how might that change our, our sort of optimal outcome? But usually that's done in, in, at sort of at the tail end and often sort of one at a time in terms of the inputs you might consider. So RDM works exactly backwards and is designed to really grapple with the uncertainty up front. The basic goal is that you start with uh, an approach or a strategy. Um, and then you systematically test that strategy against a wide range of plausible future conditions. You're looking at all the things that could happen and saying, how would our strategy perform if this were the outcome that, that, you know, that, that would come to pass? Uh, then you identify, well, how is it vulnerable? In what situations does it not work well or does this strategy just not succeed? Um, and finally, um, you know, the last step here is to do a, sort of a systematic evaluation to think about augments to the strategy that might make it uh, more robust, um, you know, uh, building in different components, um, adding in additional investment up front, or adding in adaptive components um, to allow you to do further investment um, that will design to, you know, be, you know, specifically address those vulnerable conditions um, and make you more robust to whatever conditions uh, might be. And as you can see, both processes are iterative. Um, the RDM process overall is, is designed to be fundamentally iterative. This, this is something you can go through, and I, I won't walk through each step here, but this is something you can walk through multiple times with the goal of ultimately identifying a handful of key sort of descriptive scenarios that describe what those vulnerabilities are, and these scenarios are, are arrived at through an analytic process, um, as well as coming out with uh, you know, increasingly um, robust strategies um, as you're looking out uh, into the future. There's one other point I wanted to make here, um, which is that we very much think about these, 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 this type of approach as not a black box model. It's not something that you run and you're going to crank out a solution and, and give it to um, decision makers or to a, a stakeholder group. Instead, this is something that, um, as you can see in the top here, is really designed to facilitate and support um, an, an ongoing stakeholder-involved process. 
the, the National Research Council sometimes refer to the, refers to this as deliberation with analysis. But the idea is, as much as possible, you're crunching the analysis in the background, but that you're providing key information in terms of these scenarios, in terms of key trade-offs that are identified, um, back into a stakeholder-driven process. Um, and as a means of trying to give everyone the same information and clarify and highlight the information that's useful that's really important for deciding between different approaches. So we've done this in a number of different settings. Um, you know, Grant described a lot of water management, and we actually started with a lot of this work looking at water scarcity issues in the desert southwest in California and the Colorado River Basin. Um, myself and other colleagues have also done a lot of work on flood risk management. So Lisa brought up the Louisiana as, as the prime example, and I'll speak about that for a moment, uh, just, just coming up. Um, but also we've done work, uh, other work in, in, in other areas. So we're actually working in New York City um, with post-Sandy planning um, and some international work in areas like Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. And finally, I've, I have other colleagues who've done a lot applying these types of methods looking at long-term energy planning as well. So what I wanted to do with the rest of my time was give you just a very brief sense of what this type of planning process looks like. And as I thought about it, um, Louisiana, although it's a very different place than Pittsburgh, I think provides a lot of very important parallels um, for the challenges that are faced by our region today. So as most of you know, in 2005, um, Louisiana actually had two major hurricane events, Hurricane Katrina, but then Rita, which actually did a lot of devastating damage to the western part of the state, got a little less attention. Um, but these twin events really spurred the state into action um, as of 2005. Now, Louisiana obviously has a major coastal flood risk challenge, but they also have a massive land loss problem. Um, it's a little hard to see here, so I'll describe this. Um, so the state of Louisiana um, and coastal Louisiana here has one of the largest and most productive coastal wetland systems in the world. Um, but over the last century, they've lost much of that system. So they've lost about 1,900 square miles of coastal land um, just since 1927. Um, and they are projected to lose between eight and 1,800 additional square miles of land over the next 50 years if they don't take action. Um, so this is the context for Louisiana. And coming out of 2005, the state knew they had a massive flood risk challenge, uh, a massive land loss problem, and real challenges with coastal restoration. And despite knowing these issues for decades, they couldn't find a way to sort of bring this all together into a synthetic approach. So what they did in 2005 is they developed a new authority. They developed uh, a new institutional you know, home for this work um, called the P Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority, which is now in the governor's office. And that authority was given a mandate to both address simultaneously coastal restoration and flood risk reduction. Um, and that authority was mandated to develop a synthetic, um, integrated, um, um, sustainable master plan um, that was to be updated every five years. So they first did this in 2007, but the first full-scale plan actually came out in 2012. And this is what Rand and, and other partners helped them to uh, develop. And there was a few th key things that they did here. Um, one was looking at the coastal system as a whole. They developed a whole set of new models, um, an, uh, analytic models, designed to look at the coastal system in terms of the natural system, the landscape, uh, the water quality of the system, as well as looking at flood risk and damage, and bringing that all together into the same uh, systems modeling approach that could look at projects against all of those uh, potential outcomes. And then um, really where the, more of the, the robust decision-making um, and RAND work came in was on this objective planning framework. 
that took all this information in from these systems models, um, looked at project benefits and costs across a variety of different uh, potential outcomes, um, as well as different scenarios looking at future conditions to identify well-performing, you know, high-ranking effective projects, as well as trade-offs, and critically to understand how do these projects fit together into a synthetic whole to produce the outcomes that the state actually wanted. So I'm not going to go into the details. There's much more on this that I can describe. There's also some uh, summary materials out front. Um, but overall, the net product of this process, this analytic-supported process, was a 50-year, $50 billion master plan that is now the law of the land in Louisiana. It was actually passed unanimously by the state legislature in, in 2012, which is remarkable if you know anything about Louisiana <laughs> politics. Um, but the, you know, through, through a, a very engaged and very... Um, a very engaged and, and, and very high-energy um, uh, participatory planning process um, supported by this analysis. Um, they were able to take this systems modeling approach and take this overall framework um, and provide you know, key scientific information about future risks and potential benefits from the projects. They were able to sift through hundreds of projects that had been on the book, books for many, many years um, to try to understand what are the projects that will really fit into an integrated plan and work together to meet our goals. Um, and finally, given that there were many different interests across the coast, this was a way to actually not, you know, within the analysis resolve the trade-offs, but at least highlight what trade-offs really matter and which ones really need to be made, um, and then allow the stakeholder group to go through and resolve those trade-offs to develop uh, a synthetic plan. Uh, and as I said, this, you know, we, we consider this to be one of the most successful examples that we know of that through this, went through this process, precisely because of where they started with a very, very difficult you know, political and planning situation to where they ended, which was really a consensus master plan that received um, support from the governor's office as well as from the entire legislature. And this is something that we see could be really helpful as a process and idea for a region like Pittsburgh and facing our water management and climate resilience challenges. Um, again, going back to what, what Grant and Brian had been talking about, um, I think there's a lot of parallels between the work that we've done in other places um, and, and what, what could be done to support planning in Pittsburgh. Thinking, for example, about integrated analysis that brings together a variety of different goals, including water quality and flood risk, um, and looking at it from a regional perspective to allow you know, real highlights of, of, of assumptions, project benefits, and costs for the region as a whole, um, as well as key trade-offs. Um, again, supporting this integrated planning to bring together groups like yourselves um, and trying to bring this information together in a way, you know, basically providing an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So we're all talking the same language. We're all presenting the same analysis and information that can support that type of planning. Um, again, going back to the green infrastructure discussions, this is a nice way to bring in different options that we, maybe we don't know as much about, um, but can bring into this type of analysis and, uh, and evaluate them fairly against other types of options. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, I, I think this is especially important coming out of the conversation I'm, I'm hearing about last week, is that this kind of process is really intended to support adaptive planning. So it could be that some of the decisions that we're facing today are decisions that we could push forward a little bit, that maybe we can do some now and make some of the bigger infrastructure decisions five years down the road or six years down the road. Um, and the, this analysis can be a way of supporting that, that, that exact process to identify, well, what can we do in the near term? What are the near term benefits? And what are the trade-offs if we wait on some of these decisions? All right. So with that, um, I will turn it back over to Lisa. Um, I think we're doing sort of okay on time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
information-packed, right? Um, there are a number of big takeaways that have come out of these presentations for me um, then, and probably for you too. Just a few. The fundamental issue here is the Clean Water, water Act, rendering water fishable, drinkable, swimmable. Um, we can't get there if we're not working together through approaches that are both regional, politically, and basin-wide geographically. Um, the rising uncertainty around climate change demands that we think ahead with an eye to 20, 30, 40 years, and that we consider our goals in a larger economic structure in a changing environment and with shifting analysis. This will demand a whole new paradigm, obviously, for decision-making. And finally, the importance of water to the region for health and as a competitive advantage. We need to start thinking about water differently and about the value of clean water as the way to leverage the highest quality of life here. I have a specific question for each of our speakers, and then we want to hear from you. Um, but digging a little bit deeper, Brian, um, as you've made clear, we're working to solve a multitude of problems here. Storm mitigation, flood control, source reduction, TMDLs, watershed man shed management, infrastructure services delivery. All of this requires integrated planning and management. EPA just held the municipal update a week ago, and I know some, if not many, of the members of the panel in the audience here attended that meeting. There was a lot of talk about flexibility and the recommended plan versus the selected plan versus the interim plan. But what does that mean? No. <laughs> and more, more important, what happens next? Yeah. Uh I'm not going to explain what all that means. This fall, there will be a very good um, Three Rivers uh, wet weather um, uh, stormwater sewer uh, conference out in Monroeville, and uh, you'll be able to learn a great deal uh, at that and through other resources. I think what is really important for us to keep in mind here is that we start with an extremely fragmented governmental um, uh, uh, mosaic uh, in this in this area. We don't have a sewer system. We have a hodgepodge of different pipes that have gotten connected uh, over time. We basically jury rigged uh, this system to try to respond to to changing laws and expectations, both out of Washington D.C. Uh, and out of Harrisburg, and from our own community. So if you were to take all that away and start over, we wouldn't design it the way that it's designed now, but we can't redo history. So what we have to do is, as Jordan has talked and as Grant has talked, we have to put a primacy on planning. We have to elevate and take very seriously the, the entire objective of sitting down and discussing and thinking through rational uh, um, uh, decision-making models and all the stuff that, that Jordan can tell you about. We, we don't do that here. That's not, it's not in our warp and weft. We don't do that. We are very reactionary here. We, we are reactive. Uh, we have a problem come up and, you know, we go and we fix that and then we go, you know, another problem comes up. We need to stop that, take a step back and think about all of this in a much bigger context, and again, take very seriously the kind of solutions that they lead us to. Thanks. 
And, and Grant, um, I know working across different levels of government and collaborating with various agencies can be complicated, to say the least. Um, are there standout examples? You've given us some local project examples. Are there standout examples of municipalities and agencies working together to tackle this issue effectively, either within Pittsburgh-Allegheny County or perhaps other regions that are facing similar water management and CSO issues? Yes. I mean, I, you see it right now, I think, with the, the conveyance conversation and with the governance conversation that we're having with Alcosan. I mean, that is regional cooperation. That's what it looks like. It's not pretty. Mm -hmm. um, it could be contentious, but it is constructive. And, and I think that's where we're at a point right now where, you know, this is an opportunity moment where we've been you know, many folks in this room have been pushing this boulder up the hill, and we need to continue to push and support all of those actors. I mean, you know, Brian has, I, I jokingly call it the Jensen Venn diagram, which, you know, looks at all of these 60-some-odd organizations plus all of the municipal actors that are all thinking in terms of, you know, how do we make this possible? Mm -hmm. You know, so, so that is an example. I think there's also a lot of functional examples that you see with regards to, um, you know, the Sawmill Run watershed right now with Economic Development South and the work that they're doing with PWSA and coordinating across boundaries. I mean, Nine Mile Run provides a good example of how that can work. Um, the Project 15206 is another great example. Um, but where we need to go is kind of that planning conversation. We need to think in terms of what integrated watershed management means and recognizing that, you know, we, what watersheds we live in and that we are stewards of that watershed, yeah. right? I mean, with the thing that, that always, it might be something simple, but, you know, when you drive on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you see a big honking sign that says, you are now entering the Chesapeake Bay watershed. You are now leaving. I mean, creating mm -hmm. that simple type of recognition that says, you are now leaving Public the Negley Run watershed. You know, I mean, that, you un that we start to identify with the natural geography is, you know, some of that next step thinking I think that we have to do. Yeah, I totally agree. We, we, uh, the, it's the evaporation of boundaries, <laughs> whether they're zoning or property codes or so forth. And, and uh, Jordan, that, that brings us to you and the new paradigm. Brian and Grant are looking at the plan today and the proposed steps and efforts to help move the Alcasan plan forward. You've talked about robust decision-making and a truly long view. What analysis can we do to help determine if we're going to be on the right course in 30, 40, 50 years from now? And what can we learn specifically from your work in Colorado or Louisiana that can apply here? Okay. Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot that can be done and a lot can, that can be done that's built on actually the tools that are being developed today for, for the, the, the planning that's going on. So I see a, a couple of different pieces. One is that, you know, for the current planning effort, there really hasn't been much of a, a forward view, first, both in terms of uh, thinking about potential climate change effects that I, you know, some of which I just described, um, as well as thinking about things like changes in population patterns and land use across the region. Um, some of our work that we've done with EPA and, on water quality in regions like actually part of the, the Chesapeake Bay that we just did, um, you know, land use is such a dominant factor, thinking about how much impervious cover we're going to have in the future. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about infrastructure that's going to be in place 50, 100 years from now, um, you need to really think more broadly about um, what these scenarios might look like. 
like and how the system might hold up in different you know scenarios where we get a lot of population return or we start building out the middle of the city you know what what might that look like uh in addition to looking at a non-stationary climate regime and thinking about these heavier precipitation events so that's one factor is i think really taking the analytic tools and doing a broader scenario analysis and taking that longer view um, the other one would be thinking about integration in terms of different goals um, so we've talked a lot about, for example, things like flood risk. We didn't mention it, but the landslides and erosion is another major issue. Um, and a lot of the projects, a lot of the options that we have in front of us um, could provide benefits across a range of different mm -hmm. metrics. Um, this is not even thinking about the public access or some of the other you know, uh, quality of life metrics one might look at. Um, so to me, from an analysis perspective, a natural next step is to bring in um, some of the planning for water quality and thinking about the CSO challenges together with these other metrics focused on flood risk, landslides, quality of life, and think about projects as they provide benefits across the range of those metrics. Yeah. Now, this is something we're really working on on riverfronts, a, a chance to, uh, to ecologically bioengineer riverfronts in such a way that they can actually handle, filter, and capture water. Um, oh, great. We have questions. Uh, let's start with Brian. Jordan's presentation on what worked in Louisiana made me think of our challenges in Allegheny County with our multiple municipalities. Could an approach like the one taken in Louisiana work here? What would the next steps be? Yeah, I think it can work here. I think we're taking the right steps now. We're in the middle of a, a very long iterative process. It's, you know, it's two okay. steps forward and one step back. But Overall, we are, we're getting there, but it's going to take a long time, right? You know, we, we, as I said before, we don't have a system, and we don't have a governmental or, or even a, 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 a political mindset. I mean, all of us as being part of the political process, we don't really have a mindset to address these things, at least from our historical standpoint, in a, uh, in a holistic way. But we're starting to do that. You know, it's all these, you know, it's all the stuff you talked about, Grant. You got, you know, seven different things or eight different things going on in the city of Pittsburgh. We've got conversations like this here at Rand. We've got, you know, we've got IOP working on this, and we've got Connect and Three Rivers Wet Weather and the Clean Rivers Campaign. The county executive's office is heavily involved in this, as is the mayor's office. It's starting to happen, and that's, that's what has to continue to happen these conversations, and again, sitting down, discussing it, and taking the, the answers uh, seriously. And Jordan, here's one for you. The regional wet weather planning efforts and start of implementation is under a strict timeline with our first check-in point for progress with the EPA in about six years. How soon can the RDM study be completed with concrete recommendations made to modify the existing plans? And I have to add the second part of this question, which is this may be a nosy question, but about how much does an RDM study cost to conduct? <laughs> These are always the questions you want as a researcher. How long is it going to take and how expensive would it be? Well, so the short answer is I, I think you have to tailor the research to the time available. So actually having this six-year check-in um, does present some opportunity. If it had to be six months, it's a lot harder to do. Um, so I, I do think there's some opportunity there. And, and, and I, again, I've also spoken about that with some of my fellow panelists recently um, is – 
tailoring the analysis at the, at the scale and resolution that might be appropriate to inform the, the first steps. So maybe we can't do the full thing, but maybe we're going to be able to do enough to say what, what is step one or to do sort of a higher level analysis that, that would get you to those near-term um, actions. So a great example of this is actually our work in Colorado, which again, some of which was, was mentioned um, previously. Uh, where there, the, the focus, what we looked long-term, we did this analysis with many different climate scenarios, um, but because of where the politics are at in the Colorado Basin, and because of the tenuous cooperation between the seven basin states, there were many options they couldn't look at yet that, wouldn't, that weren't really on the table. So what we were asking ourselves was, among the options that we can agree on, what are, what's the low-hanging fruit that we can start going about and doing now, which ended up being mostly focused on municipal and agricultural conservation and efficiency? Um, what is the low-hanging fruit that gets us started recognizing that this is an ongoing process um, and also recognizing what we can use the, the tools of this analysis to support that process moving forward? Um, so my hope would be that over that six years that this process is going to continue yeah. and that an analysis could usefully inform that over a longer time period versus, you know, just very, very quick. Uh, in terms of the second question, I, I can't really answer that question. <laughs> um, it, it, it very much depends. Right? <laughs> it, it depends on the circumstances. I mean, Louisiana invested quite a bit, not just with RAND, but with a variety of, 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 of partners to support that effort. Um, but what my understanding is, is there's actually a lot out there that could be leveraged for that kind of analysis, a lot that could be pulled together into the, this kind of analysis and the good work that's been done by some of the folks in this room. Yeah. Well, it's really exciting to me that, that this uh, methodology was invented and exists here in Pittsburgh. And I'm, I, I'm curious how, how, you, how you got there and how they found you, but we can save that for the reception <laughs> <laughs> um, because we have a, a question for Grant. How might the city uh, incentivize the linking of the inflow problem with the vacant lot problem? such as in, uh, as in the model that Jordan Fishbach described in Louisiana of linking coastal uh, ver ver verification and flood mitigation? I think, you know, listening to some of the conversation is, you know, it's, it's my former life as a land use advocate underscores that we also have a land use problem here, right? With regards to, to how we direct investment the legacy that we're left with because of depopulation, deindustrialization. And that question becomes real critical to this solution, right? Is it vacant land in addition to parks and open space provides a huge opportunity with regards to, if ecologically feasible, to direct stormwater flow? Mm -hmm. um, you know, a couple of things, I mean, I think that we've done right in the past couple months at the city and the development of a, a, and Councilwoman Gross is here tonight, the, the land bank initiative um, that she helped spearhead really provides an opportunity for the city to start to aggregate some of that land and also to start to think systemically. You know, so part of the solution with regards to that is how that land gets allocated and utilized. It, development might not be on the table, maybe, and it, and it probably shouldn't be in a lot of cases. If you think in terms about steep slopes and hillsides and those opportunities that probably, you know, given our druthers 60, 70 years ago, probably shouldn't have been developed on, right? So using those as opportunities to, to capture flow is a huge opportunity. That goes for surrounding municipalities as well. When you start to think about the affordability equation and some of the smaller municipalities, using their vacant land could be potentially um, become a, a trade-off system. You know, we're using vacant land that is not going to be developed by the markup place 
as an opportunity to reclaim stormwater. Right. I mean, that's 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 a shift, right? That's that's I don't want to call it innovation, but it requires us to change uh, our thinking in terms of how we're addressing the issue of today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have one more, and I'm going to throw this open. If if a plan is agreed upon, so who is going to pay for this? Triple question mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barney. <laughs> so Thank you, Barney. I'll, I'll jump in one part again, going back to the Louisiana example. The one one reason, and I didn't mention it in my briefing, that they really wanted to do this process. Obviously, Louisiana does not have fifty billion dollars mm-hmm. for their plan. Um, And this is always the question that comes up after this. But what they wanted to do was set out a long-term vision for what what the investment would look like over that time period and also get everything moving in the same direction so that they could support their congressional delegation and so they could start getting everybody on the same page in terms of what their priorities should be. So ultimately, yes, Louisiana is going to look for federal funding to do some of their for some of their coastal investment. But they're now at a point where everybody, again, is pointing in the same direction and they have all of this analysis to support why these are the right projects and why Congress should choose to invest there. Um, so it's not to say who would necessarily fund it, but I, I, I suspect, um, and we're actually seeing this to some degree, and Grant and I are talking about this um, on a regular basis, um, the opportunities that are coming out from the federal side looking at resilience planning um, and opportunities that are best leveraged if you, have the, if you can respond to those with a plan. Um, and with, you know, with a synthetic approach that's designed to meet the goals that are being defined by um, agencies like HUD that are putting these, these types of, of, of competitions out. The, the one thing I would add to that is that, you know, we're in a situation where, there, where you either pay me now or you pay me a lot more later. You know, it, it, the cost is not going to go away. And, and you're either going to pay dollars or you're going to pay through health uh, loss of recreation, loss of regional competitiveness, and all those other kind of quality of life things. So uh, I guess what we need to think about is, you know, we need to not think about this as a cost. We have to think about this as an investment. Let's turn this around, right? You know, we're, we're investing in, you know, the, the future. I've got a 14-year-old daughter. I would like her to have her children here someday so I can enjoy, you know, my grandchildren and be able to take them down and go fishing on the Ohio River and go boating. And, you know, that takes an investment. And and that's the mind shift that I think needs to, to change here. Yeah, and, it, you know, just to add to that, I mean, a couple layers. I mean, one is, you know, in thinking about water differently, you know, that, that changes that personal shift in perception with regards to something that we need the value because it's required for us to live, right? Yep. You know, I mean, without it, we're not here. And, and it starts from there. But I think the other piece, too, is to start to think innovatively with regards to where we seek investment. You know, part of that is that we have to pay more. We have to acknowledge that because of the value of water to both, you know, our quality of life in our region, that we have to invest in our system. You know, as Secretary Shoke, the department at the head of the Department of Transportation, had a really awesome slide in one of his presentations when we were working on Act 89 a couple years ago, and it was looking at what people pay. You know, what you pay for your cell phone, hmm. what you pay for your cable TV bill, and and then when you look at what we pay for infrastructure, nice. in this case it was, you know, gasoline, same thing goes for water and sewage conveyance. You know, I mean, what we pay comparatively is relatively low. And then 
thinking in terms of what those other investment resources are, whether it's FEMA or HUD or kind of what I would call maybe non-traditional federal sources, is part of that creativity that we all have to do in terms of addressing the problem. And then the one thing I'd finally say, you know, from the mayor's standpoint, he sees Pittsburgh as this opportunity area, you know, really as being the test model for innovation. And part of that is a recognition that we're not going to get it right all the time. But in using an adaptive management approach that we are always continuously looking to improve upon every process that we build from. You know, so we, we see ourselves as kind of, when talking with, uh, um, you know, the regional administrator, Sean Garvin from EPA the other, way, the other week, you know, he distinctly said, we want to be the model, Sean. You know, you, use us. You know, we want to be this cauldron of innovation so that we can show other cities in term, who have this same problem of how to, how to make strides. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we're prepared to do that. And and you cited the Green Boulevard study, and that really is a a case where, through HUD and DOT, we were able to, with federal resources, make decisions along the way, bring in biological water resources engineers, looking at pervious uh, opportunities, looking at eco-bioengineering, looking at uh, places where we could daylight and, and maximize green infrastructure. It's not always an add-on cost. I think if you can make, you can, we can, we can um, incorporate those those decisions and that technology into the decisions from the beginning. Then often we're spending the dollars that we're going to be spending more wisely. But um, I I want to thank you all for the individual prisms of wisdom that you have brought, um, that your views that you've brought, and also for your passion for the subject. I I think we've all really learned an incredible amount. I know you all probably have a lot more to talk about and a lot more to say at the reception. (laughs) Um, So so please, please do join us and keep going. But I want to thank Rand very much for hosting such an important discussion this evening. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.